Today, we take the Wayback Machine. We take it all the way back for so much more. We're going to 1984. It was the summer, the year of brand new concepts, brand new characters, um, franchises that didn't even know they were franchises yet. Ghostbusters, Karate Kid, Indiana Jones, and the Temple of Doom implements an all-new rating system. Things are changing, and, and we are right there examining it, looking at it. What a surprising year in comic books. Secret Wars was all the talk. It was all the rage. And Spider-Man got a brand new black costume that took comic books by storm. We are going to check it all out on part one of 1984, an all-new episode of Observations. Hey everybody, welcome to another edition of Observations. I am your host, Rob Liefeld. If somehow you stumbled here on accident, I will tell you uh, up front, we talk comic books, we talk superheroes, we talk superpowers, we talk the publishing of comic books, and we talk the history of comic books and the way that comic books and superheroes have just dominated and continue to dominate pop culture. I come at it from a perspective of having made comics for just right under 38 years now and having having written and produced and published thousands of pages worth of comic books, hundreds of individual comics, but, but, but you, you get into pages. I mean, uh, I, I have been around the block in this business. I love it so much. I can't stop talking about it. So each and every podcast is like, like, you know, an hour long phone call with the girlfriend talking about comic books. Uh, this, this was started in the pandemic due to just complete, uh, abject loneliness. My, my, my youngest son, uh, bought me this blue Yeti mic. He showed me the programming. Uh, we were off to the races. I can't believe we have gotten this far, but I am, uh, just honored to, to, uh, have you listening. Uh, to this podcast and enjoying just all the ways that we examine the evolution of the comic book uh, format and the comic book as an adapted work, bringing us so many different shows, movies, toys, video games that that the that the public just cannot seem to get enough of. And and look, you know, uh, right right before uh, I I I, w- I was prepping this podcast in one of the Facebook groups that I'm on. Uh, a guy shared clips of the 1977 CBS Spider-Man series. CBS got the rights to Spider-Man. It was uh, right, right around the time that they were doing The Incredible Hulk with Bill Bixby and Lou Ferrigno. And for, for those of you who weren't there, that was a big hit for CBS. It dominated Friday nights. It was part of the, their, their Friday night scheduling. Uh, I, I think they were shocked at how many people showed up to see that particular uh series it was at the time the longest running of the comic book themed shows and uh, and and certainly among the highest rated and it stayed there St- stuff like wonder woman with linda carter did extremely well but after two seasons it bounced around they they changed networks um the incredible hulk with its uh with the with with, with the format 
um, the, the fugitive format with Bill Bixby wandering into a different town each and every week and trying to hide the secret that he had this crazy Hulk inside of him. And the Lou Ferrigno aspect of it uh, was clearly very successful because when I do uh, conventions, which I haven't done here in, in, in a better part of a year, but when I do them, Lou Ferrigno still commands tremendous attention and affection for the time uh, when he was playing the Hulk. But at the same time, CBS uh, did a Doctor Strange movie that is now out on uh, DVD. When the Doctor Strange 2 movie hit last year, uh, they finally reissued it, gave it a really nice, uh, uh, you know, reissuing of of, of this uh, very rare, rarely seen. It, it was only aired once, obviously, in, in, uh, in my youth, because there wasn't this, this cycle of cable and streaming. And it aired, it was a two-hour movie on CBS, which was a more faithful adaptation of Doctor Strange than, than you might recall or you might remember. Uh, or, or or maybe you're like, I can't remember it. I wasn't there. What are you talking about? Well, I was there. Big TV guy to add, you know, so much of what we knew as kids. The TV guide was almost like our wizard. Um, whether it was Battlestar Galactica, V, uh, you know, the the Hulk, the, the Spider-Man clip I'm about to talk to you, to you about, this Doctor Strange movie. Um, anything, especially sci-fi or fantasy, they got some really great uh, advertise. Like like the studios hired like a Drew Struzan type or an or an uh, an Amsel uh, uh, level painter uh, illustrator, and you get these killer uh, full page ads in the TV guide. And sometimes they turned out to be better than the show that you got, and you would tear them out. Maybe if you're like me, you'd take them. To the coffee, uh, to the copy shop, where you can get copies made and blow them up and make them bigger and almost like little posters. But uh, Doctor Strange, man, it was announced with this big, giant, you know, full page ad in the TV guide. Oh my gosh, Marvel's got Doctor Strange because we didn't have again, not just not the internet, but there weren't dedicated magazines. Only one that I was aware of, Starlog, uh, and and then a sister companion called Fangoria, which which really just covered horror but starlog was like your sci-fi fantasy stuff but it, it was certainly not something that was on your uh radar each and every each and every month at the at the age that i was at so the tv guide really did serve to inform you of all this and spider-man the spider-man 1977 movie it uh it, it got maybe like a three-quarter page like like a, a almost a double page splash like one part of one page and a quarter of the other they really wanted to announce and let you know that they had spider-man but when watching this this footage uh of of, of this uh spider-man film i mean I, I i sit back and i go what they attempted was pretty good for 1977 effects and and and, and really the arch- archaic uh world of of uh of special effects that that television shows found themselves in. Star Wars had just broken out, broken out. It had just completely burst onto the scene. But what so many people didn't know behind the scenes, but what we would know later due to all the different documentaries about the making of, of Star Wars was how we almost didn't get Star Wars because the um, Lucasfilm, the FX team, almost didn't make the deadlines. Um, they were literally creating on the fly how to make the Death Star, the uh, the final the final run with the X-Wing fighters, all the big special effects stuff. Um, the, 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 the stop motion, the, uh, the, the, the cameras that they had to make to go along with all the different miniatures. I mean, that was just happening. That was just breaking. So you're certainly not getting that level of technology transferred to television. 
But the thing about uh, Spider-Man 1977, uh, it was, uh, and Stanley gets a, a a script consultant uh, credit on it as I watched it over, but it was 88 minutes with commercials, so they, they padded it out to two hours. But but they showed, this clip that I showed really just showed all the Spider-Man-y things that he was doing uh, in the course of the show. And, and you also, so the screen that I'm watching this on, and so many people, because there's no plasmas, there's no giant 60-inch television in anyone's house in 1977. I mean, we're all kind of, you know, maybe the big fancy that the guy, the neighbor down the street had the 36-inch color TV. Whoa! You know, big giant ice cube. I mean, a big giant square that, that my family and none of my families. And I, ironically, I saw this. I, it was a night that I, I was dropped off and being watched by my Aunt Ginny, who I just love so much. And she, uh, she let me watch this uh, Spider-Man movie. And so it was a little grainy. But, you know, him walking up and down the walls. And, you know, now you can see there's clearly a line pulling him as he's putting through the motions of crawling. But the swimming stuff, some of the stunt works. He, he fights three, uh, three, three uh, um, guys with b- bamboo poles. Uh, that that's kind of the height of the action. But as I'm as I'm watching that, and and of course had to had to get through it and then go to the comment section, and people are like, "This is terrible! Oh, I can't believe the advances we've made!" And then and then you know one guy's like, "Oh, I just this 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 doesn't this doesn't compare to the 2002 Sam Raimi or the you know the sequel or the 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 Spider-Man." Well, of course it doesn't compare. Of course it doesn't compare. This was the, this was the beginning. This was the beginning of them trying this stuff and kudos to them for trying to figure it out. You know, obviously you didn't get a whole lot of Spider-Man, just like you never got a whole lot of Hulk because against the special, the, the special effects budget uh, was such that they knew they could not wait for it, wait for it, marvel you with their special effects. And they knew that, you know, they were going to be compared at the time with some of the very best comic books out there. But um, the only thing that I always mention, and it just cracks me up, is uh, that the star was Nicholas Hammond, who was a little boy in the Von Trapp family in, in, in Sound of Music with Julie Andrews and, uh, and Christopher Plummer. And then he grows up, he's a very handsome young man, perfectly cast. I mean, he was so dead on as Peter Parker, especially for that age. But the, uh, the funny thing is when I see, um, when, when I see uh, Nicholas Hammond as the director in Once Upon a Time in Hollywood with that giant stalk of hair. I mean, they, they like three feet of hair. Um, and he's, you know, he's, he's telling, he's telling uh, Leonardo DiCaprio's character, you know, the outfit that he has and the cool jacket that he wants him to wear. And of course, he, again, he's the director in the, in the big scene in the movie where DiCaprio has to keep doing it, but finally just crushes it with the little girl. And she's like, that's like the greatest, you know, acting I've ever seen in my entire life. But that's Nicholas Hammond, who we all... Uh, came to know as the Sound of Music kid, who then grew up in our um in our I mean I, in 1977 again. I'm I'm just uh, I'm nine that summer. I'm ten that fall. So so um you know Nicholas Hammond what was was two big deals to me at that time because trust me if you had um a, a mom she was watching uh Sound of Music in 1970. 1977, 1976, 1975, 1974, every year that they put it on broadcast television, tonight the hills are alive with the sound of music. Nicholas Hammond, obviously very prominent in that. But this is just some of the ways that that I have um, you know, enjoyed watching and some of the first times that I enjoyed comics evolving. And into in, into television, and you're like, wait a minute, there's there's these aren't cartoons because the cartoons were were the most prominent way that we were getting this stuff. But the 1977 Spider-Man uh, television show, the Hulk 
uh, episodes, uh, Doctor Strange, all the stuff that CBS partnered with Marvel on in trying to bring to life was the beginning of all of this. And so it is fun to, to walk uh, down memory lane. And let me tell you something. I was very humbled and continue to be humbled. I had a store appearance, uh, my first in, again, over a year. I've just been in my cave trying to make comics, make art, uh, and, and just maximize my time to the best of its ability, uh, of, of my ability. And and uh, I was there at a store signing uh, signing Deadpool Batterbloods, and I was so thrilled. Uh, thank you f- to anyone who came out and saw me in, at Dustin Tunes and Toys. Um, it was just a, a, a great time, a great, just an absolute blast seeing people for the first time in so many years. But again, so many of you uh, were very kind and pointed out how much you've enjoyed the podcast. And then of course, I, I tell you why, why, tell me why, because um, I, I'm just trying to, uh, you know, find inspiration every time I walk up to this mic. And, uh, and so often the, 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 the question is some of the history that, that is shared on the show, some of the actual um, historic interviews and, and those elements that I share. But, but one guy, he drove all the way down from Los Angeles, and if you're listening in Los Angeles to Tustin on a good day as a 60-minute drive, so I really appreciated the time that he put into that going, you know, two hours minimum both ways, and he said, it just feels like that friend in, in, in who loves comics that I uh, never got to talk to, but we're catching up and we're talking comics, and I said, man, that, that hits me. That, that is so, uh, that is, that is uh, just, just so much fun to hear, and uh and again, so so if you you were out there and 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 you you saw these the way I saw these when you were um when you were coming up, you have a different view of of the of the the Incredible Hulk uh, appointment television on Friday nights. I always say my parents took me out to the mall on Friday nights, but we always got back in time to see the Incredible Hulk. It was the one show that really didn't have the same interferences. That, like I said, all the the bionic shows, the bionic woman, six million dollar man ad for me because those were on church nights, and I had to fake like my temperature and I had to act like I'm sick. But most of the time, I missed those. I missed those episodes and didn't get full versions of them until later in in repeats. But the Hulk, man, woo! That was that was a, a date on the calendar. Friday nights, everybody's tired. Go out for dinner, walk around the mall, do a little shopping, get home, watch watch Bill Bixby, watch Lou Ferrigno. Today we are going to continue this fascination, but we're going to go back and look at a specific year. The Decades series continues. Uh, you you all, with your feedback, have been extremely, um, you know, just uh, positive and, 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 and very enthusiastic about, about these, these deep dives into specific years. Today, um, this is the part of the show where if I had the budget, I would queue up um, Van Halen and you would hear uh, Jump and, and you would see in your mind if you were back. Then, or if you've seen it on YouTube, you'd see David Lee Roth jumping, uh, like it feels like 20 feet high in the air with his his legendary splits that he could do. It was very, very uh, athletic uh, and, and, and one of the most flamboyant and energetic frontmans in the history of, 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 of music, pop music, rock and roll, wherever you want to label him. But because uh, we are going to discuss, uh, because that, that is a giant hit for the year of 1984. Also, of course, uh, the year that we all all found ourselves living in the George Orwell science fiction, uh, the, the the actual year that George Orwell wrote his um, very dystopic, very just um, uh, depressing sci-fi uh, sci-fi novel about the government spying on us twenty four seven nineteen eighty four, and of, of course, as I'm sure every high school did that year, our school put on three nights of the stage play 
of 1984. So hey, um, that's about as much shout out as George Orwell is going to be uh, is, is going to be given in 1984. While his um, novel had, had certainly had resonance, and it's 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 clever that it is named after 1984. That's not the stuff that I take with me. We do movies, we do comics, we do we do television, and we do. Uh, uh, music, movies, comics, and television is what we're going to cover when we do these decade series. The way it breaks down, we do the movies first, then I get to the first half of the year in comic books. Uh, because, and, and like, like many years before 1984, boy, you look back, you walk through, there's going to be some great stuff. There's, there's a couple of things that really stand out to me, um, in 1984. And you got to remember in 1984 is, uh, it's, it's a different time in the country. We, we seem to be more united. We didn't yet have devices where we could yell at each other every day and tell each other how wrong we were about our beliefs and, um, and, and just completely, uh, just chew each other out, insult each other, might, you know, you know, dunk on each other as, as social media is, uh, very prone to do. Um, it's the one part of social media that has absolutely just worn me down. And, uh, and as a result, you know, the, the, the good thing, and maybe you're the same. I've just tried to put more positivity out into the world because there is so much of the dunking and the, and the, uh, the, the, the just vitriol and the, the, the persecution of each other that we didn't used to have. 1984, um, like it or not, uh, it, it's just a fact. It was reflected on the magazines of the time, the Time magazine, when magazines mattered, when magazines, like a cover of a magazine would be re- re- reported on the television uh, uh, newscasts because this magazine was making a statement and that statement mattered because the millions of copies that these magazines sold, they would be you know, bought at the grocery store when your, your family went out to get groceries or at the, at the you know, drugstore or at the gas station. 1984 was Ronald Reagan's America. The image of the cowboy as president. Uh, the, 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 you know, the cowboy hat, the cowboy boots, guy on a horseback, uh, guy with a gun. I mean, the, the, the full, uh, embodiment of the, of the cowboy imagery was in the white house with, um, Ronald Reagan and, uh, his presidency is about to, you know, go into its second term. He's got to, he's got to, you know, establish his second term, but that's going to take us into an eight, you know, eight years of Reagan. And it was right during this time, again, that uh, even toy companies, Hasbro, would uh, a year prior, just, just a couple of years into Reagan's presidency, would realize we can bring back G.I. Joe. We can safely return G.I. Joe uh, to the toy shelves where it had been chased away by just, you know, all of the changing times and the Star Wars and the sci-fi boom in the late 70s. And they said, you know, we will celebrate military. We will celebrate all of these things that, that, the, that, that emanates from the White House and that the country was, was really, you know, eating up with, uh, with the American flags and, and uh, just a, a renewed sense of, of patriotism. Now, now, maybe your family came from a, uh, a severely liberal or democratic wing and that those years, that Reagan stuff was really, you know, you hated the guy because trust me, um, early on. The first guy that I ever <laughs> that I ever encountered, um, I, I probably shouldn't. Uh, he was one of my partners in Image Comics. Just we met during the Reagan era, and he would just go off and tell me how much he <clears throat> hated Ronald Reagan. It <clears throat> hated Ronald Reagan, and that without a doubt, his quote: "Ronald Reagan will be remembered as the worst president in the history of the United States and a criminal." 
And you know what? I would just laugh. It didn't offend me. You know what? We stayed friends. Our friends, our friendship only got closer because in my family, I mean, Reagan, 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 my, my parents were die hard, die hard Reagan Republicans. And that is the, um, uh, reflected the ch- the childhood that I was growing up in, but I didn't dislike this person. It only made me um, like him more that we could have uh, a different belief. And I think he would tell you, like, I never really took up for an argument. Um, I-, I was way too young, even when he met me at 19, 20 years old to form some sort of, uh, you know, political outlook of which I think I'm still, um, you know, forming. And hey, in case you've ever wondered, the guy who's hosting this is an independent. I truly, and, and I'm sorry if this pisses you off, I hate both sides. Um, I, I'm not I'm not a fan of Republicans or Democrats. And, 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 and I'm sorry if you uh, don't like that, but that's the most we're going to do in regards to politics, reflecting only that the Reagan um, America was, was um, wrapped in American flags and, uh, and, and cherry pie and, and cowboys. And Hasbro tapped into that and relaunched G.I. Joe to tremendous, massive success, sellout success. And, and so there were, there were corporations that were reflecting that age. I'm not sure you're going to get as much of that out of this particular year because it, it, it always shocks me that G.I. Joe, with all the success that it had, a real American hero is the banner that it was, was splattered across the, uh, the cover, uh, it, it, it's always interesting to me, especially looking back, preparing for this episode in the very brief window that I did, that Captain America didn't do better during this time, that Captain America didn't shine more given all of the um, quote unquote Americana that was being uh, consumed. But, you know, the, the world was extremely, uh, you know, rah-rah Reagan, rah-rah military. And in 1984, again, uh, has, 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 has so many of these tenants and you're going to find it in comics and you're going to find it in TV and some movies, but you're going to really, trust me, the music stuff is going to get interesting, uh, but you're going to really find it, uh, right here. Um, um, um the, the thing that excites me the most about 1984, as with so many, because so many of my, my shared memories come from the movies. Now, it's interesting as I glance over, like I said, there's a couple of things that really pop out to me about 1984 in both comics and movies. They're, they're, they're very deliberate, um, just, just, uh, uh, very, very, very deliberate, very blatant, uh, tent poles of, of that time, uh, things that I remember the most. And then you go back and you check the data and you go, this, these are really impressive feats that these talents and these publishers uh, and these studios were able to pull off. Think about what we're going through right now. This, this, a glance at early summer of, uh, you know, 2023, we've already gotten a big Spider-Man movie in Into the Spider-Verse. We've already gotten a giant uh, Marvel live-action film in Guardians 3. Uh, the Flash is coming out imminently. Uh, Fast and the Furious came back. Was it for the 10th time? Have we had 10 movies with, with the cast and, and the crew and the characters of Fast and the Furious? But I think you're beginning to get the picture. Little Mermaid came out. We, we've, we've had just a return to um, the the very prominent properties, characters, the the what you call the franchises. We just keep getting franchise after franchise, and original films are harder to realize than ever because the studios don't want to take the risk. They want the sure thing again and again and again, and they're willing to just continue to bet on the sure thing again and again and again and. The interesting thing about 1984 is in this top 10, there is literally two established uh, franchises, if we, if we can t- call it that. And one of them 
is only in its second in- installment. It's breaking out. But uh, but but on the flip side, this top 10 reflects a whole bunch of brand new franchises that didn't know they were franchises at the time they were making them that got released and found favor. And now, you know, I mean, good God, 40 plus years later, we are still dining out on these because they didn't know how much we would love them, cherish them, uh, have a special bond with them. And, and, and so much so that, that that they are being revisited again and again and again. And let's just start, honestly, at the top with the movie that dominated the summer of 1984. A lot of, lot of film critics look to this particular year as just this incredible year where there was just all these different breakout hits. And they're not wrong. They are absolutely not wrong. And at this time, any year that was um, doing the kind of business uh, that the summer of 1984 did without a Star Wars film, which had said goodbye the year before, and, and without uh, you know a, a big, giant, uh, existing franchise along the lines of it. At that point, we'd had two Superman films. We'd had three Star Wars films. So uh, th- these are original concepts. So many of them are not adapted works. They are just good damn movies born of good damn movie scripts. And they connected with us as audiences and we took off. And I will never, ever forget because I was actually going out on a date when I saw this first movie. I was a huge fan of all of these um, the, 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 the actors portraying their roles. The comedic talent that was assembled for this movie was phenomenal. I, I was a huge fan of all these guys on Saturday Night Live. But the, the reason I bring about up a date is this, this uh, uh, girl that I was going out with, sweet girl, just had, had so much fun. Really enjoyed uh, going to see this movie and, and all of the shocks and, and the just giant breakout laughter. I remember I saw this in Pomona. I don't live anywhere near Pomona, but she lived quite a, um, a, a bit away. We had, um, she, I went to a high school called uh, Whittier Christian High School, and so many of those people were from uh, La Habra and La Habra Heights. And so the, the place that was playing this was literally right near to where, where, uh, Frankincense, uh, which is a uh, twice weekly, three times, Wednesdays, Saturdays, and Sundays, is a giant comic book and toy marketplace that people flock to each and every weekend. And it is the most time I've ever spent in Pomona and the surrounding kind of boroughs is because I go to Frankincense. Well, there there is a there is a uh, you know retail outlet that I pass, and and it, and it had this movie theater, and this is where I saw Ghostbusters and. Wow. I, when we got there and we stood in line, I, I realized, wow, the buzz for this is real. It was a Saturday night opening weekend uh, and and uh, just so excited, you know, hot summer nights, just the excitement. We had like the nine o'clock tickets. We were going to go see it. The trailers had been great. The advertisements had been great, but I don't think anybody was prepared for the sheer brilliance of this of this movie the the way we would love these characters the way we would love these world and 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 the way that we would um that we would follow uh bill murray and dan Aykroyd and and uh into this crazy crazy adventure and the audience just roared but you know it was the beginning of its dominance that opening weekend with uh stay puff marshmallow man and and uh ectoplasm and Slimer, and just all of the different concepts uh, that they would introduce, and just 
really like you could just feel. And at that time, I had seen a number of different Ivan Reitman, the director of this film. I had seen a number of his films uh, with Stripes and with his other Bill Murray outings. Uh, and, 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 and to watch this, uh, the, it was coalescing on the screen. Like you could see his fantastic direction editing the way that he used these incredible cuts where they would just nail these lines. And and the funny thing is, as I was preparing to do this and kind of scribbling down on a piece of paper that you know, I think I should, I'll do 1984 next week, uh, New York just in, in this uh, very early summer of 2023, last, last week, New York, due to the Canadian uh, wildfires, you guys all know that they got this incredible smoke that came across and just the winds died so that the smoke had nowhere to go. So it just sat on the city for days. And of course, I don't, I don't live there. My heart goes out to anyone who had to experience it. We, do, we, we, we have gotten these kind of same situations in Southern California where we are just uh, covered in smoke and ash for days due to our own crazy wildfires. But it didn't have the orange skies for the, the extended days that this one did. And so what happened is there were different newscasts when they were covering this giant, you know, orange skies due to the Canadian wildfires that were in New York last week, they would click, they would show this clip from 1984's Ghostbusters when they're all in the, I believe it's the mayor's office. Uh, if, it's, if it's the governor, forgive me, but it's the mayor's office and they're all debating whether they should, you know, take action against uh, the, the supernatural occurrences that are happening. It's that great line when they're like, we're talking biblical, we're talking end of the world, biblical stuff. Dan Aykroyd's great, you know, Great line read there, and then of course it 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 uh it it ends it ends with with Bill Murray talking about you know dogs and cats are, are going to be sleeping with each other like that level of apocalypse, and so they're discussing the apocalypse that 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 New York is 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 under in that 1984 Ghostbusters clip, and they were showing it again and again to to, to, to um kind of explain what New York was was feeling like last week. Like it felt like the apocalypse. Like like when are the ghosts gonna start coming up out of the air? If you just saw a freeze-framed uh photo of one of those haunting orange uh orange nights, orange days. I mean orange like at the at the middle of the day, just just this haunting orange and the deep smoke and the fog and you couldn't see across the street. It did look like hell on earth. It did look like, you know, the apocalypse had struck New York. And so to, to use this 1984 Ghostbusters clip, uh, given everything they could have used, again, just speaks to uh, the incredible success of this franchise. The biggest laughs, the absolute biggest laughs, the biggest insults. Um, you know, when 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 when, uh, when Bill Murray has the infamous line in that same office, extending that scene where he get, he's it's true, sir, <laughs> and he speaks about uh, about uh, his opposition's very very small um, uh, private parts. Uh, so so uh, or or absent private parts. So 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 Bill Murray in rare form, just cutting it up, absolutely great. Sigourney Weaver from the Alien franchise, just in a breakout role. Rick Moranis just crushing it. Good special effects, really good special effects, and uh, just an incredible world that we continue to 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 want to hang with and 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 visit with. I of course cannot not mention the the amazing uh, Harold Ramis along with Ernie Hudson. I I so you know the gushing of the Ghostbusters. I'm sure you guys feel the same way. 
you know, I, I've told you guys that um, from 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 my home as I as I've, I've been sequestered doing work and not traveling, I will I will see some of uh, I'll go on social media and look at what's going on at all these different conventions that are going on across the country each and every weekend. And in uh, in the past couple of months, one of the cool things that 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 has happened is the cast of Vacation. Uh, obviously, not Ghostbusters, but the cast of Vacation is assembling for these giant group photos, and you've got you know. Uh, Chevy Chase, Beverly D'Angelo, I think, yeah, pretty much, pretty much that's Beverly D'Angelo, uh, and Christy Brinkley, and, and sometimes, like, like, this last weekend, I saw Randy Quaid was there, I'm like, Randy Quaid, like, I thought, I thought he was, like, either in jail, or the, the feds had him, or I just haven't been following my Randy Quaid, um, news, uh, you know, you'll know Randy Quaid best from when he flies into the spaceship in Independence Day, and, uh, and says, I'm back, um, and then, <laughs> Kind of, kind of went on to become a a, a conspiracy. Um, I'm not going to say nut job. That's that that that's too harsh. But uh, very had, had, had he entertained some incredible beliefs and was not um, scared to share them. I always want to, especially when they become actors. These siblings become actors. I want to get the Dennis Quaid and the Randy Quaid like like holiday dinner uh, like eavesdrop like. <laughs> <laughs> and see how much they line up or or of Dennis Quaid of uh of you know inner space and and so many others is like hey Randy you know pump pump, pump the brakes on on some of this stuff but but uh you know he is uh just an, an, an incredibly funny character in all the vacation movies as well so so he was popping in but sometimes uh because you know as you know all the different kids in vacation are played by different actors because they never got the same actors back and so it was this running joke so depending on the venue they get the different kids in these cast photos why am i telling you about vacation in these cast photos it's pretty impressive that you you can get Chevy Chase, Beverly D'Angelo, and Christy Brinkley into one shot you know much less and add the cousins and the and the you know all the siblings that that, that that portrayed them, but imagine being able to get the Ghostbusters crew to get together. That they haven't done it; they're not going to do it. I'm I'm not even going to attempt to tease you. But I saw Ernie Hudson at a show in uh, in Toronto in 2016. Deadpool had just come out, so I was in Toronto. Um, Joy, my wife, was with me. We were we were had just you know kind of finished up with a long day at the table, and Ernie Hudson walks by and. We uh, connected. He he he, you know, told me how much that he had loved the Deadpool film, and then I was like, "Screw that! Let's not talk about that. Let's talk about Ghostbusters." And I just went crazy. And he he, you know, you can see when the per- person in the picture with you is like like really entertained, either by the energy or the enthusiasm or by the love. And the and and again in the pictures, I think he's like this this guy's nuts. And uh, this 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 old this grown man with with three children is telling me how much. Uh, that he absolutely was out of his mind uh, about the work that he did in Ghostbusters. And it's true. The thing that stands out for me so much about Ghostbusters is it was an original concept. An original concept, certainly not picked by anybody, by the way, to dominate the charts the way it did. But Ghostbusters crushed that summer. That night that I saw it opening opening weekend, not opening night, but Saturday night, just uh, roaring with laughter. The audience satisfaction the people just had the best time the great song i mean you know uh ray parker jr just crushing it with that theme song and just such a satisfying appearance uh i'm sorry a a satisfying experience and just when i drove home all, all we wanted to do was talk about ghostbusters and then i would continue to go back and see that movie again and again and again that summer 
And for me at that time, going back back three to four times is a big deal. But it was uh, as as we prepared for Hell Week and as we prepared to to up our summer workouts as part of the football team. Uh, it, it was it was the jokes that were being cracked, and it was you know the memories being shared as 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 uh, you know in the weeks following with Ghostbusters, and then rolling into the fall. Now again, of course, I told you that it was the number one movie, and and it dominated everything, uh, besting uh, the the movie that was picked to be the biggest movie of the summer by over four like forty million dollars. Ghostbusters made two hundred and twenty dollars domestic. Um, that is a big deal. That is a big deal for a movie no one really saw coming. They thought hey, these guys are funny. They're, they're the SNL guys, but they are in no way, shape, you know, or form the 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 the, the blockbuster kind of go to guys that they were this summer. That no one no one saw them as being that. Um, this is what launched them all into another thousand frames, a uh, hundred thousand frames of film and projects, and just extended all of their influence. And and just Ghostbusters had just a giant massive pop culture um impact immediately original an original property not adapted from a comic book not adapted from a novel an absolute original um just knocked it out of the park with ghostbusters you know if you want to go back and 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 read about all the different inspirations that dan Aykroyd, who kind of conceived the concept um all the stuff that inspired him and, and, and uh, his own kind of uh, interest in the occult and, and, and supernatural. I mean, that's really what brought us this world. And of course, there's been great like, you know, the movies that made us and stuff like that that have covered the behind the scenes. I would encourage seeing all of that. But for, for, for certain Ghostbusters just shocked the charts. Now, number two was the movie that everybody, every pundit, all the magazines, the magazines that I tell you that everyone had to had to buy, the, the, whether it was People Magazine or New, Newsweek or Time or all these, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, the giant follow-up to the breakout smash worldwide hit that was Raiders of the of the Lost Ark and like had all of us audience audiences saying, wait, you know, I'm going to love this guy as much as I love Han Solo. How is that possible? That is the magic that Harrison Ford conjured in his performance as Indiana Jones and obviously the sheer wizardry behind the killer talents of Mr. S- of Sir Steven Spielberg, who was paired with George Lucas, as you know. And again, that original Raiders of the Lost Ark 1981 poster of which I am looking at above my desk each and every time I podcast. Indiana Jones, the new hero from the creators of Jaws and Star Wars. I mean, they would flex. They flexed with that Steven Spielberg, George Lucas, um, two two great tastes that taste great together, right? I mean, two incredibly talented buddies who have blessed us with their talents. Well, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom was the sequel. They had kept a pretty good, they had done a pretty good job keeping, keeping raps on it. But uh, this movie... Uh, this is an opening night movie. This is an opening night movie. The Orange Synodome here in Orange County. Oh, I mourn it every time I go back and go by, which I do often. And because that's where my errands and my day takes me. And I see the beautiful condos that they erected in the wake of the destruction of the Orange Synodome, where I pretty much saw every movie from like 1976 to, to 1996. Uh, just 20 years of just incredible. Each each dome, you know, had a different movie house in it. And there were many domes at the Center Dome. Huge facility, huge, um, just just great memories. Whenever I bring it up around this area, people will immediately join in because they saw Star Wars or they saw Independence Day or, or you know, they saw Raiders of the Lost Ark or they saw The Rock or Con Air, you know, there as well. I mean, I, I, it, 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 it died maybe, maybe 
somewhere after 96 but uh oh sad sad maybe, maybe it was as, as as late as 97 so you actually did see con air there um indiana jones temple of doom i went to the earliest uh showing i could on a friday and loved it absolutely loved it uh of course it was never going to give us the shock and awe of the of the original and it wasn't going to have uh bad guys along along the lines of the the most vile bad guys that ever in the history of, of the world existed, the Nazis. But but it gave us this really cool international uh, adventure with with a sorcerer and a wizard. And, and, and I'm sure most of you are aware of this, but Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom is responsible for one key element in, in history. One, one thing that stands out more than the rest. So, so the thing about Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom that immediately grabbed the news media and, and almost more than anything dominated that early discussions about the film again on 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 um on news stations now, i don't know what kind of family you, you, that you grew up in i don't i don't know um i i really wasn't at this point in my life uh in in 1984 the summer of 1984 i'm 15 and uh i am certainly not controlling the dial on on, on the te- television at, at at my house that that's still the domain of my of my mom and my dad and we watched a lot of news. They always had the news on. They had it on in the morning. They had it on in the afternoon. They had it on in the early evening. And they would watch the you know 11 p.m. Eyewitness News. We always watched ABC News. Always ABC everything. ABC, ABC, Good Morning America, 2020, whatever news. The reason I'm telling you this is what dominated that weekend is as I talked to you about the talking heads, the magazines, and the stuff that was immediately covered was the giant footprint in the, in the immediate release of Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. The giant footprint was the incredible critical uh, backlash that it, re- it it received due to its um, darker elements, the darker elements in Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom. Of course, if you've seen it, and if you haven't, what are you doing? Go see it. Um, um, the, the evil sorcerer wizard takes a, takes a, takes a kid's heart out. <laughs> uh, uh, takes, takes a heart out of a guy's body. I mean, what we're talking, um, it, 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 Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, of, of Doom um, uh, features child slavery, black magic, uh, and, 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 <laughs> and human sacrifices. And, uh, you know, the heart comes out of this guy's chest at one point in the movie. And, it, and it's great. And it's really, uh, it, 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 it's like kind of sending up some of these B-level, B, B, B you know, horror movies of the past. But it really does lean all the way into that we have a very potent uh, new bad guy here. <sighs> the news media went crazy based on the fact that uh, that that there was so much blood and violence and gore in that particular scene where the heart, um, you know, the, the the situation with the heart and uh, the news media just immediately like this 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 franchise has gone dark this is too dark for kids this is too dark for kids is this movie too dark for your children tonight you know the, the talking heads would say tonight uh the controversy is it continues to mount over indiana jones the latest installment of steven spielberg's you know raids of the lost ark series as as parents question you know if this is too dark for their children <laughs> That that is that was like the the first couple weekends that this movie was out. That is what it was up against. The uh, the entire sequence where where um our 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 our, our bad guy Mola Ram, uh, the the leader of the Kali worshippers, where he where he removes the beating the 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 beating heart um from the chest of this individual, uh, 
he, he, he's calling on dark forces, dark supernatural forces to pull this off. And, and funny enough, yeah, I, <laughs> the, the character continues to scream and wail even after his heart has been removed. Um, but the funny thing about this is when it got um, edited and aired on TV a couple of years later, uh, the, the, this disturbing human sacrifice scene was completely altered. And uh, instead of showing off the beating heart, uh, Molar Rams and in the edit is empty okay like this 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 controversy had legs okay um in in that like i can't believe i would take my kids to this movie and of course you know you've always got the we've we've now identified them as the karens of the world but the karens of the world were up in arms the karens were very upset over the fact that they took little billy and little jimmy and and they and they saw the level of blood and gore uh, audiences 15 years old i've talked to you about it I wanted to see this. My 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 level of 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 uh, of of engagement and interaction was now based on the more mature stuff that I could see. I'd grown out of like the initial Star Wars. All the other the initial Star Wars movie was perfect. What I'm talking about is the Ewoks being teddy bears in Return of the Jedi. Still, gosh, it bothers me. I'm I'm, I'm never gonna let it go. I'm gonna need to go see a shrink about this. Uh, maybe when I'm 60, I can book it. But uh, but again, Temple of Doom hit all the right notes for me. Um, but but they altered it again when it when it um hit uh hit television and and then again we we are uh <clears throat> we are looking at, at this incredible uh you know backlash to this of which at the time Steven Spielberg would address and suggest uh due, due to this um crazy reaction Spielberg suggested that the Motion Picture Association of America, the MPAA, would alter its rating system. And and within two months' time of this giant release, we were now looking at a brand new rating. And and, and to this day, I, I'm, I'm shocked that I, like, if you were there in the summer of 1984, you saw the birth of PG-13. PG-13 told you, hey, don't bring any kid that's not 13 to this movie. Okay, so somewhere between PG and R, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom would now dictate your expectations, okay? Um, maybe not bare breasts and, and, and gaping exit wounds from, from bullets um, and, 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 di- and dismemberment, but, but now we have this. It's not, you know, a kid's film. It's not G, um, and, and yet it, it kind of pushes the envelope, and now it's PG-13, okay? The PG-13 rating would be applied later that summer, and we will most certainly cover that but indiana jones gave birth to a brand new rating because the karens of the world were so shocked that there was blood and guts and again there's a great banquet scene where they're all grossing people out in eating monkey brain remember when they go they <laughs> ladies and gentlemen monkey brain and they're eating tarantulas um love the movie love the final showdown with indy on the bridge uh i left completely enamored and and more wowed by the world of indiana jones and the fact that they proved hey this is a character that i can take you all around the world with and I am excited to re-engage with Indy in a couple of weeks when his uh, when his fifth installment comes out. I'm the guy. I, I don't care. I don't, I don't care any negative reviews or how many um, people at a con a month ago you know, said they didn't enjoy it. I'll be there. I'll be watching Harrison Ford uh, put the hat on, put the fedora on one more time. But Temple of Doom, Temple of Temple of June. That's a that's the unreleased version. The Temple of Doom, Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom, number two movie. For 1984, did not see the 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 the, con, the the competition with Ghostbusters coming. It made 179 million dollars, which was a ton of scratch. But this is like um, 
just just incredible because uh the movie that is immediately beneath it uh is another Steven Spielberg affair because he had he had so expanded his role as a producer uh, and it really, really felt you, you felt it the summer of 81, a couple of years prior when Raiders came out and Poltergeist also came out. Steven Spielberg's, uh, you know, flex as a producer was about to continue to shape us in ways that, that we did not anticipate. His success is to this day, just, um, just overwhelming. But, but, but the number three movie is a movie that Steven would always have his, also have his, um, fingerprints on. Gremlins is, is this film. Gremlins is the number three film of 1984 and it came out of nowhere again a brand new concept uh not adapted from an existing work um gremlins just cute little movie again kind of at the time seen and marketed as a darker side of what spielberg was able to pull off uh, in 1982 with et we we re-embraced cute and cuddly but this time it, it it was with these uh the very problematic gremlins um the, the movie draws on the uh kind of the folklore of mischievous creatures that cause malfunctions the gremlins um and 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 in this movie uh, a young a, a young man receives a strange a strange creature and and the funny thing is you're not supposed to water the gremlins okay so uh and uh just incredibly uh directed by Joe Dante who would go on to do so many other terrific films that we enjoyed but but gremlins really just exploded uh, it made two hundred and twelve million dollars. Great puppetry. The grum- the Gremlins were, inc- uh, were 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 really fun to watch. As as um you know, the, the bottom line is it 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 pits uh what it it, it 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 pits Gizmo, who's the cute and cuddly Gremlin, against all the evil Gremlins that 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 form after uh, you know after some mishaps, and then then you know the human uh the, the human friends uh. Play, played by Zach Gilligan and Phoebe Cates, and it, just great casting. Just uh, had a great time watching this. Saw it a couple times that summer. Was super entertained by the puppetry, the 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 special effects. Against Spielberg's as a producer was able to walk in with somebody like a Joe Dante, who may or may not have gotten the budgets and the and the uh, ability to do what he 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 wanted anywhere else. But now Steven Spielberg's sitting next to him and saying, "No, let's let's completely." Lean all the way into Joe Dante. Let's give him the money. I'll supervise. I'll make sure that 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 this movie will will be the the product that you expect with my name, Steven Spielberg, as a producer on it. And so that was that's what what Steven was doing for so many of his friends because he had he had the clout. You know, this is written by Chris Columbus, who would obviously go on to um do do so many other giant huge franchises himself home alone and of course the original harry potters uh chris columbus there was no looking back this guy is you know extremely talented as well gremlins is packed with great talent it is a really fun um little cute cuddly fantasy creature film with great special effects it captured i mean literally i i I know it it spawned a bunch of sequels but you feel like i don't know for the success it had that year i feel like we don't we don't talk about it as much the number four film just a giant whopper dominated again along with ghostbusters even though indiana jones and gremlins are more successful i would tell you that um that the movie this movie that comes in at number four was was maybe one of the most talked about films of the year and had a giant impact on the culture that movie of course is the karate kid okay with with ralph macchio william zabka elizabeth shu 
just, again, another date movie, another Saturday date movie. Uh, those, uh, like so many of these theaters, I'm telling you guys from uh, about where, where I saw them, that, that, that those theaters are gone. They're gone. In La Habra, they had a thing called Fashion Square. And at the far end, it was anchored by two giant department stores. And, uh, and at the end of, of the center, uh, now they've replaced it. There's a regal there now, but it's not the same. It's not the same. It's not, the, it's not quite in the same position. But uh, went and saw Karate Kid, another packed house uh, from the team you know, that, that produced, that, that gave you Rocky. They now gave you this incredible uh, underdog story with Daniel LaRusso. And it just captured high school, the music, the beach parties. It really felt like a Southern California product. And it translated all over the world. Um, huge, uh, incredible Mr. Miyagi. You know, we all knew him from, from happy days and, uh, and Pat Morita, uh, uh, you know, immediately with one movie just jumped beyond any portrayal he had ever had on television and became this seminal iconic Obi-Wan, you know, Kenobi level figure. But, uh, Karate Kid just incredible. Uh, the original mo- movie Still stands up. Saw it again about in February. It came on cable with commercials. What kind of net, net am I? Well, I'll tell you why. Um, I'm drawing. So so, so if, if, if a movie that I'm familiar with comes on while I'm drawing, and I do this a lot of the times when I'm on the road at conventions up in my hotel room before I hit the floor, if I'm up at nine o'clock drawing in my hotel room, I am trying to find movies. You know, I, I click through the stations to see movies that I've already seen so I can just listen to them. But again, glancing up, revisiting this movie all these years later holds up great. Uh, you know, I mean, it's, it's, it's kind of a sports film, but it's so much more and Karate Kid dominated. And, 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 and again, to think that brand new, uh, Ghostbusters fresh, uh, Gremlins fresh, Karate Kid fresh, not based on an existing, you know, intellectual property, that, that word that I love so much, that IP, it is absolutely 1000%, uh, original, uh, and, and it, it just captured everyone's imaginations. I mean, in, in a summer now, like I just said, where everything is based on an existing property and adaptation of, 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 of even a company's most successful cartoon, um, you know, or, or a video game, we just didn't have the, the, we, we do not have the, the, the same risk taking that we did in, in the summer of 1984 and so many of those surrounding, uh, years that gave us stuff that was completely just born of a great idea. Ghostbusters, Gremlins, The Karate Kid, uh, the fact that Cobra Kai has taken on the life that it is and that not only do I love it so much, but my daughter loves it and my kids loved it. And, 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 and Cobra Kai has been introduced to a brand new uh, set of eyeballs, a brand new generation and, and a brand new generation of stars have, have, have grown from it. It just speaks to, again, the, the, the footprint that 1984 leaves on the culture. And so Karate Kid made $90 million, but it feels, you know, it's one of those movies that it feels like it was the biggest movie of 1984 and it made $300 million. I mean, like it just feels like it, it had such a bigger impact. Number five, Police Academy. Tremendously funny. Um, push, push the envelope, you know, little vulgar, uh, just had people laughing in the aisles. Uh, a springtime movie that we all just could not get enough of. Number six is Footloose. Uh, great. Again, small town boy uh, overcomes oppression by the religious right. And at the end, are they dancing? Come on. Have you seen the movie? Kevin Bacon, breakout role, Footloose. Now, Beverly Hills Cop is interesting because in, in, in the other, uh, in the 1985 uh, podcast that we did recently in our decades era, 
Beverly Hills Cop is the number one movie of the year with this staggering hundreds of millions of, 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 of money made. Well, it only came out in, in the last few weeks of 1984, but was enough with just that portion. The 1984 portion put it at nine, number seven. It would go on to be the number one movie of 1985, but just out for a few weeks at the end of 1984, $77 million put Beverly Hills Cop in the top 10 at number seven. Star Trek Three: The Search for Spock. Got to tell you, enjoy this movie, but not the um the achievement that wrath of khan was i always felt a little let down by this um we're not going to get into a slugfest over this right now if it is your favorite star trek movie i get it i, I understand why it was just uh just just felt a little choppy for me and, and nowhere near the masterpiece that wrath of khan was um terms of endearment wraps up a huge huge uh drama f- film with 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 uh, shirley mclean deborah deborah winger uh just uh grabbed everybody's attention by the end of the year huge as for as for a, a drama just made all sorts of crazy crazy uh um money at the box office put 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 asses in those seats and number 10 romancing the stone the first real attempt to imitate what was going on with razors of the lost ark michael douglas kathleen turner danny devito kind of a more leans into the comedy aspect of of the relationships and the adventure of raiders of the lost ark but big enough to make it number 10 i always wish they had done more movies in in this world with these characters uh the jewel of the nile came out a couple years later it did okay it didn't quite do this it didn't take people's uh uh imaginations but michael douglas as charismatic and as adventuresome and uh and and as just big in a giant movie star turn as anything he's ever done uh romancing the stone so you kind of get two kind of indiana jones flavored movies the 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 original indiana jones character in his in his first sequel and then michael Douglas in romancing the stone to round out the top 10 it was a great year for movies and again what i just i'm always impressed by is we have one two three four five six seven eight brand new concepts in the top 10 fresh they were they were screenplays okay now I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna tell you that before I wrap this up, um, they were screenplays, not best-selling novels, not comic books, not video games. It was it was this originality that really dominated. But the movie that got the very first PG-13 rating because they scrambled to put that together because again, you know, the Karens of the world demanded it. They were very very disturbed by by the by by the fact that they felt felt fooled that their kids went and saw. You know this this uh, this very traumatic Indiana Jones movie, um, and uh, Red Dawn, Red Dawn, such an incredible movie. Did not make the top ten for the year, but just an incredible uh, adventure film with Patrick Swayze, C. Thomas Howell, uh, just just a killer. I, I cannot recommend more. Uh, it, it, it surmises it, it 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 proposes what if Russia had invaded us. In, in in the bright skies of of an of 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 an afternoon uh, in in the fall uh uh the 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 russians and the cubans just they they start drop dropping out of the sky they take over small towns and and it begins this battle for dominance again reflecting the the ronald reagan era uh which which had pitted us so hard against the russians um the uh 1984 certainly took took everybody it was more of a niche movie but it snuck into the top 20 it stuck right there into the top 20 and entertained us enough enough but that was it, it goes down in history 
as uh, if you Google what is the first PG-13 rated movie. Now, again, Indiana Jones started um, uh, started it in regards to like, you know, people being so upset. <clears throat> but the uh, PG-13 movie uh, was attached to the release of of Red Dawn because, again, the motion picture... Uh, Association of America had to react given the, given given the anger. Um, again, Indiana Jones, Temple of Doom, and Gremlins—they they were both uh, more more released with that family friendly PG thirteen. But uh, again, the violence and the removing of the heart in Temple of Doom—they had to do something. They had to show somebody. So the first ever movie to receive a PG thirteen is Red Dawn. And uh, and so great great year movies. Red Dawn again, just a cool cool concept these these aren't giant giant intellectual property the studios took risks they took big swings and we were the beneficiary 1984 kick-ass movie kick-ass year in movies four movies about movies put put our asses in the seats with some killer killer performances again how many times i mean we're, we're they're making the the sequel to the new ghostbusters i really liked i really liked the most recent Paul Rudd Ghostbuster movie. I thought it was. I thought it was. I thought it was a blast. And again, at the time, I took my son. He was 19 years old, 20 years old, and he was blown away. And that really, um, he, he had heard me rave about Ghostbusters. He'd always kind of leave the room. Didn't have the same connection with the original that I did. But this new one, boom, landed. It landed with him. So whether it's Cobra Kai, The Further Adventures of Ghostbusters, a new Indiana Jones, really these original concepts became the franchises that we are revisiting right now. In, in, in the 2020s. So um, again, phenomenal success, phenomenal year. And this, we pivot to comic books. Now we're going to, we're going to cover real quick the first six months of comic books in 1984. And there's nothing, nothing that stands out so much in the world of comic books in, in the year of 1984 as Marvel's launch of Secret Wars. Now I've covered Secret Wars before. I have done a dedicated podcast to Secret Wars. Secret Wars is a giant um, success story because it was it was really destined to be just another toy, um, just another toy outing, just another uh, hey let's 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 hire the comic book company in this case Mattel hiring Marvel to do a bunch of uh, comic books that reflect this new line of toys that we're investing all this money in. But Jim Shooter saw something more. He saw something, an opportunity to do something special. And he got together with Mike Zek and John Beatty, who had, right, as I, as I mentioned at the beginning of kind of the Reagan era, the, the, the big patriotic era, they had done a great run in the early 80s on Captain America. And, and, and they were a tremendous team. And he brought them on in, in a storyline that would combine Fantastic Four, Avengers, X-Men, Spider-Man, all the biggies, all these big villains, Doctor Doom, Magneto, uh, all on this off-world uh, battle that that where, where they were all pitted against each other by this cosmic entity called the Beyonder. Say whatever you want. The advertising, the hype for this thing was was huge, and it and it hit and it landed. It lands in January. It launches the year 1984, and it goes on to become at the time Marvel's biggest hit. It just keeps on trucking. Each issue is just selling more than the one before. Um, the big events that defined it, not only this giant grouping of all these popular characters in one adventure, but of course we got the black Spider-Man suit out of it. And, and, and in January, at the same time that we're getting Secret Wars, in, in January of 1984, they are 
releasing Amazing Spider-Man number 252, which has the first cover, supposedly, um, <clears throat> featuring the black costume. Uh, Spider-Man 252. And, and we are off to the races because now you're like, well, how did he get that? Because that's coming out in the same time as, 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 as Secret Wars. And, and yet the Secret Wars won't, won't bring the black costume to the fore for, for a few months. But the black costume, you know, these comics had to continue. And, and so much of what was established is that because, well, what happened while these heroes were gone? They're all off world. And so they immediately went to an explanation that this represents a period of time where these characters were removed, um, you know, misplaced by this cosmic entity named the Beyonder. And so some people ran with it and wanted to exploit that time when they were gone. And, and others were immediately like, well, we're already back. You've got to go read Secret Wars. We've already been removed, had the adventure and back. But if you want to know the entire scope of that, you got you to get it. And this is all across all of the different Marvel comics, which plays into our curiosity and our desire to be part of Secret Wars in the first place. And we know, wow, Spider-Man gets a black costume. This is a big deal. Um, this, 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 the, the grouping of the characters, the introduction of, of, a, of, of an entity so powerful enough to do this, which kind of then would be, all be unwound in Secret Wars 2, uh, which, 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 again, the Beyonder kind of loses as, as much coolness, coolness, at least it did for me as, as a fan at the time. Um, and yet it, it, it also has the, the black costume, which, like I said, becomes immediately a very Spider-Man's black costume was so visually arresting and so fresh and so original. Uh, and there's an entire story behind that. A fan actually had written in that the fan letter Jim Shooter would later print, would later show um, his idea for this black, black spider suit exactly as he wears it. Um, Rick Leonardi uh, was then packed in to do a turnaround and some cool design sheets, and they look amazing. But, uh, and, 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 and supposedly, uh, well, Historical fact finds that Jim Shooter would then compensate and buy that design from that fan. So isn't that cool? Isn't that? Did you not know that? Did you not know that a fan created the black costume and then it would go on to really create so much of the heat and the and the uh, excitement around Secret Wars? But Secret Wars just kept on chugging. Mike Zek and, and John Beatty weren't able to do each and every issue. Um, Bob Layton pinched pinched in, and towards the end in Secret Wars number twelve. Uh, there's a bunch of different inkers are inking. It's another one of those, get this book over the line. You will find Art Adams, uh, who's about to emerge and explode in the years to come on Longshot and the X-Men books. He inks over Mike Zek in a couple pages, and they are cool to see. But again, that that that, that double-sized conclusion had to get out there. Um, the one thing about Shooter, he, he had the trains moving on time. And and it really taken Marvel out of a period of missed deadlines and fill in books and inventory stories where you were expecting like the part the second part of a giant saga and you got a random story. Well, that's an inventory story, and 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 they would have those in the drawer in case something didn't come together and they still had to get the book to press. And they would always apologize about it in the letters page and tell you that they'd be back real soon. And that happened a lot pre Jim Shooter, so he was really famous for getting this stuff together and, and getting this back on getting this back on track but um i remember going the the friday that secret wars was released again back in the 80s much running up 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 to the mid 90s comic books still were were coming out on fridays for the weekends your retailers got them and put them out on fridays and so you got friday saturday sunday we then moved to wednesday and now it's tuesday and wednesday and maybe it's every day of the week but i remember that friday afternoon after school driving 
was called Fantasy Illustrated. It was in Garden Grove. Uh, it was it was near the location that Mile High Comics would later move to in Orange County. But uh, a really nice guy, guy named Dave, a uh, very quiet guy, had a one of the smaller shops. But I had become really enamored with it because he ordered more independent comics than any of the other stores in the area. He would have the the Elf Quest. He would have the Nexus. He would have the the Southern Knights. Uh, th- th- these are all just rando independent books but when you're a comic book guy and you want to consume anything and everything you go to the guy who's willing to take the risk dave took the risk i'll order one i'll order two and 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 maybe somebody will buy this um he had he had a great immediate racking when you walked in of the new the new comics the new week's comics and man the crowd to buy secret wars number one it was the 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 most packed that i had seen any comic store on a release day up until that point and again, I, I I absolutely recommend you go and you look at the dedicated um, episode that I did of Secret Wars that delves into a lot more of the um, putting together of this book and the and the behind the scenes with the toy company and and just what an incredible uh, success story that that it turned out to be for Marvel because it it is the number one book of the year and it dominates now. I mean, I mean, the year prior, Alpha Flight had broken all the records for Marvel. This brand new um, book by John Byrne and. The, the, the thing, because I'm going get, to get, get a little into John Byrne and, and what he did and the fantastic things that he did in 1984, because he's a giant success story still, still, even after his huge X-Men run of 77, 78, 79, 80. So, so here's a couple things. 1984 is the first time. In May of 1984, they issued the very first reprinting of uh, a couple of months prior to that, they do just the Dark Phoenix saga as a special reprint, high-end paper, high-end cost. I have it on the rack behind me. And, and that's where they showed what the potential original ending was supposed to be before Jim Shooter said, Dark, you know, Jean Grey can't live. She has to be punished for, for wiping out a planet and ending all these people, all these people's lives. That ending was produced for X-Men 137 and Jim Shooter changed it. And they had to um, give you the ending that they get now. I have pages from issue 138, the issue that followed, because they were that deep into it. They had already drawn that. And on several of the original art pages that I have, I have patches on those. And underneath the patches, you can see the original art that was drawn that, that, that wasn't used, that Terry Austin would then ink the new patches that, that they sent in. Because uh, I'll just tell you, Gene is alive walking the grounds with Scott in, in issue 138, which, which can't be possible if, she, if Gene is no longer with us, as is the case with the new ending of 137. Well, the, the, the very first high-end reprint of that comes out early in June, uh, 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 I'm sorry, in, in the year of 1984. But by May, now, after giving you that and prepping you, they released their first collected edition in, in domestically in the States. And this is where this body of work in 1984 and the, and the advent of the trade paperback and how we all wanted to put our comic books in, in, in nice books and put them on our shelves in a different way to collect and collate. They start that in 1984. The very first has a Bill Sienkiewicz cover um, to make it more appealing for like the bookseller's market. But the entire thing is a good uh, eight issues worth of, of, of John Byrne, Chris Claremont, Terry Austin, and their incredible Dark Phoenix saga. And it's the first time it's collected. But the big wow of John Byrne, the year prior, he finally uh, spun, off, spun off Alpha Flight, making it the largest launch Marvel had ever had to date. Something that John Byrne um, has mentioned and, and talks about openly in several of his own publications, including the foreword to his uh, Dark Horse independent comic, The Next Men. He talks about it there. I touched on it in our 1983 uh, Decade series. series and. Uh, 
1984. This is an incredible feat. And we're going to take you through June right now. We're doing half the year. This is a giant flex. As guys were running out of steam, Frank Miller had 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 crossed the street to go to DC. He's doing Ronin. He will then do Dark Knight. He is he's going to make DC his home for the next several years. That's where he's going to find his new inspiration, and 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 that and that's where he's going to uh, continue to push the boundaries after hitting all these giant creative and 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 not only critical but commercial sales heights with Daredevil, making it the number one book for Marvel for a period. Jumping, I mean, for a book again, I say it every, every time. If this is your first time listening, prior to Frank Miller, Daredevil was almost canceled. It was only available six times a year, bi-monthly. He comes on, he writes it, he draws it, he takes it not only monthly, gets it out there each and every month, but takes it to the top, jumping past other giant franchises like Star Wars and X-Men for Marvel at the time. Well, he is gone. He is no longer at Marvel at this time. Walt Simonson uh, is in his second year doing spectacular work on Thor. Uh, George Perez is over at, at, at DC, and he's going to give us the Judas contract, which we're going to get to, uh, because that really kicks into high gear in the spring and summer of 1984. But John Byrne is doing two books a month, which you're like, well, he always did two books a month. Did you know this? And you can factually check it. In, in whatever month it is, January, February, March, April, May, June, in the teens, somewhere between 14 and 18, that realm, the middle of the month, every month, Fantastic, Fantastic Four and Alpha Flight came out on the same damn week. It, they came out on the same damn week. You were getting 44 pages plus covers, 46 pages. Um, so one of these issues he inked um, during this period in this first six months. But he is writing, penciling, inking, or just writing and inking. And that's one time on, on Fantastic Four. Uh, but but that the inking that he does is... is, is, is incredible embellishing you see john Byrne all over it but otherwise writing penciling and inking two books a month that come out on the same week so you are getting a double dose of john Byrne. and if you've ever asked why do guys like liefeld why does jim lee why does todd mcfarland why do the guys who followed mention him so much there's there's your ticket it goes beyond x-men it, it goes beyond that he just had a run a nice long healthy incredible imaginative second best to jack kirby's run on fantastic four it's because alpha flight and fantastic four came out the same damn week you can check it it's historical you know in april maybe it's june in april maybe it's april 15th they both came out in june maybe it's june 17th they both came out they were landing on the same week so when you walked into the comic store you got your burn fix in in double super super wattage just double dose double shot john Byrne, uh test me on this one it is 100 the truth i was there i remember it you're like oh my gosh john had pivoted to because of secret wars this the she-hulk period again the thing stays behind in secret wars he doesn't come back with the fantastic four which is something you find out early on because they have to continue their stories and they do and now they've got she-hulk alongside of them and i got to tell you as far as a creative um call and and and, and a, a great move that re-energized the comic she-hulk joining reed sue and johnny was perfection in the meantime in things own book he's exploring all these different worlds because he he chooses not to come back and, and there, there's all manner of different reasons for that but for a good year he is separated from the marvel universe post secret wars except again you're able to read the secret wars where he is there brilliantly illustrated by mike zek written by jim shooter uh in in this giant off-world drama that pushes not just comics but toys with secret wars what else happened in uh in in 1984 in regards to the comic book marketplace uh th- there's a giant uh humongous bomb dropped uh creatively that again we are still dining out to to this very day and that is may the 1st 
<clears throat> May 1, 1984, the Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles arrived. I encountered this comic at Comic Castle in Fullerton off Harbor and Amaridge. Okay, there's like a cupcake factory there. Uh, now, there's no longer a comic store. I walked in and right there at the bottom of the, 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 the racks that the shelves, the shelving that you encountered right when you walked in. I mean, literally the, about six feet, seven feet into the store. Boom, there's the, the, the new comics. And at the bottom there is this magazine. It grabs my eye. I see that it has some Frank Miller, some uh, Ronin aspects reflecting Frank's recent DC release. Some Daredevil Ronin mixed in there. But they're turtles. They're talking animals. They're action animals. And it was a magazine size. It was black and white. I flipped through it. I flipped through it. But that particular week, I had already been spoken for. My budget was such, given the, the jobs that I was holding down, the printing, printing for my, 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 my uh, dad's church, running the printing press. I've covered that on different episodes. You know, running church bulletins, um, flyers, uh, whatever, whatever calendars, hymnals, uh, song sheets. The money that I was making that, I was, I was spending on dates and comic books. I was spread very thin. The dumbest thing I ever did was put Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles back. <laughs> I can remember flipping through it and going, this is kind of cool. This is kind of cool. By the time I returned a week later, gone. Oh, those all sold out. The, the few we have are gone. And uh, at that time, you didn't have the internet, but you, you heard from your friends on the East Coast who maybe went to a convention that weekend. And my store guy, his name was Rick. He, he ran Comic Castle. He said, hey. This is selling like hotcakes on the East Coast. They, 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 these, these copies are like, they're not 20 bucks like in, in one week, in one week's time. Uh, I hadn't even heard of the Turtles. I hadn't, maybe, maybe I saw a, a, an ad for them in one of the comic news magazines. But it, the red cover, the magazine size, I encountered it. I flipped through it. I admired it. I had hopes that I could pick it up. Gone. You know, the things we do if we can go back in time. The things that we would do if we go back in time and, uh, and, 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 and correct some of those, write some of those wrongs. And one of the wrongs that I'd be writing is I would have that minty, juicy, crisp edition of Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, number one. Think about it. May 1st, 1984. Kevin Eastman, Peter Laird, Laird change everything. Eastman and Laird change everything. We are still dining out on Turtles toys, statues, and you guys know that I have given the most, the macho award to Kevin Eastman and his return to, uh, to the Turtles and his, his uh, futuristic dystopian take on the Turtles called The Last Ronin. This guy, this dog continues to hunt. This ass continues to be kicked by the amazing work that is done uh, in regards to Turtles. And it all starts. It all starts. It begins with uh, this incredible book that comes out in 1984, The Turtles Legend Begins. We got a new cartoon coming out this summer. We got more merchandise. I love turtle stuff. Statues, action figures. I've got my last Ronin action figure. I bought up last Ronin. I bought up multiple copies. I could not be more excited for my buddy Kevin Eastman, who continues to rock and roll. Uh, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a little gem of 1984, a book that, that, that if you can find a copy of Alien Worlds, number one, it's actually full, full, the full title if you're going to google search is three-dimensional alien worlds number one uh it was put out by pacific comics and it was a bunch of short stories like an anthology of aliens and our encounters with aliens and has a beautiful painting painted cover 
of a giant naked woman uh, observing uh, a rocket that looks like it's about to take off from the moon. And that 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 cover is by Joe Chido, who would go on to color some of your favorite issues of Top Cow, uh, Top Cow Prediction Productions, early Cyber Force, uh, Wildstorm books like Wild Wildcats. Joe Chido, amazing painter in his own, in, in his own right, had had his own card set, painted card set released um, in the nineties. The reason I'm telling you about this anthology is there is one of Art Adams' earliest short stories is featured in this thing, and it is br- brilliant. It is beautiful. Uh, it is called the, the 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 story. It's only a five page story, but it's really well drawn. It's really uh, distinct and commercial, and everything that makes you love Art Adams. It's called Away Off There Amid the <clears throat> Softly Winking Lights. It's one of five of, of five, I believe, five books in. Uh, three-dimensional alien world got that on a saturday poured over it. again i had i knew art adams was coming i had seen him at all these conventions saw each and every issue of long shot produced as, he, as he'd bring uh xeroxes um he's in the he's in, he's now in the course of not only wrapping long shot up based on his southern california convention appearances uh he he is now doing the x-men but in the in the interim he was doing short stories along the way, and Pacific Comics got him for one. You should grab Three Dimensional Alien Worlds. Number one, that is your secret, um, secret ingredient from 1984. You, the, the secret stash, because that's what I'm here for. I'm here to share this with you. But yeah, New Mutants uh, had the Bill Sienkiewicz run going on. West Coast Avengers uh, number one, the miniseries launched, which would uh, really establish a new wing for the Avengers during this time. And as I mentioned, Teen Titans was in the middle of. The Judas Contract, which we're going to get further into in our part two of 1984. But we're going to wrap this comic book section with the fact that uh, summer of 1984 was when, spring summer was when Marvel launched Transformers number one. Hot on the heels of their success with Real American Hero, the G.I. Joe, G.I. Joe Real American Hero comic book series that briefly became one of Marvel's top, top books. But, and, then, and then remained one of their favorites, one of their top sellers, but really pushed that number one ranking. Uh, Transformers came out. Beautiful Bill Sienkiewicz cover. We're about to get a new launch of Transformers books with a new publisher. Skybound is the uh, the new home uh, following the 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 stay that it, that the that the Transformers had at IDW and on the heels of the giant memories that it, where everyone fell in love with it as a cartoon, as a toy, and as a Marvel comic. Well, Transformers number one was launched in 1984, and again, talk about along alongside the Turtles, something that resonates. Um, there's so much more to discuss in regards to comic books and the back half of 1984, but you're not going to get bigger than Secret Wars and the black costume, which we'll delve into a little more <clears throat> because you, you want to talk. I mean, again, I, I stumbled into a thread last week, like, well, wait, isn't the, ba- isn't the black costume venom to which we're going to say, well, isn't it? And, and we'll, we'll examine that yet again, because it never goes away. Anytime something has like nine or 10 fathers. It 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 begs kind of a a circle back, a little more of a reexamination. But Secret Wars dominated the charts. John Byrne was the most prolific creator uh, of his time, the most popular, and you saw why two books a month, literally the same week in 1984. You got 44 pages. Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles, The Transformers. Did I mention US one? What are you talking about, Life? We'll talk more about it when we re-engage. Uh, 1984 part two something that you should look for as uh as we continue our observations is what i'm going to call the uh 
End of show notes. At the very end of the show, I will likely circle back with some additional facts, figures, or or, or some added tidbit. Maybe it's a correction of something I got terribly wrong, uh, an actor's name or something I butchered. Um, so that'll be at the end of of the show. Swing on, swing on, you know, swing on by at the end of the show. <laughs> Stay with me as 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 I'll give you today. Today's going to be something uh, pretty special. Uh, so 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 just again at the end of all these little plugs that I'm about to do. Um, There'll be there'll, there'll be some 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 extra added um, info. So, at the end of each and every episode, uh, I read the reviews that you guys leave for this show. You guys are so ridiculously generous. We are so blessed uh, by the fact that you guys uh, share share so much enthusiasm for our show. And when you write these reviews, you take this time out. I always. Um, uh, look forward to reading your reviews at the end of the show. It helps us so much uh, in regards to our, our um, uh, visibility on the platforms and and uh, just just the the profile of the show and the success of the show. And I just appreciate it so much. You guys are so ridiculously generous uh, today. Stock broker Bill, stock broker Bill. I know you. I I, I feel like I've seen you on a live stream. <clears throat> he writes amazing podcast. He gives us five stars. Thank you so much. He says, I just finished the creating of a comic book podcast. Amazing podcast, Rob. Thank you for going all in on yourself on that one. I think I think he's um, referring to the recent episode where I talked to you about how I conceived of, executed, and um, brought forth to you uh, the, the, the Deadpool Batter Blood uh, first issue, the launch, the miniseries that came out recently. And uh, thank you all for buying that up and selling that out. But I think this is what he is referring to. He says... Uh, you always go in on so many great artists like Jack Kirby and Frank Miller, George Perez, Art Adams, Neil Adams, just to name a few. I'm glad you went all in on yourself. You are to my generation what Frank Miller and Jack Kirby were to your generation. I can't wait to see and read Deadpool Batterblood. Have a great day. Keep making the comic books and the podcast. Let me tell you, Stockbroker Bill, because he signs it Stockbroker Bill. I, I just I'm so excited that you um are enjoying the show. I love to go into processes and uh you know, I, I figured there is no better behind-the-scenes process than I can give you than one of a comic book that that I worked on myself. And so I'm glad you enjoyed it. I'm glad you listened to the show. I'm glad you enjoy all of the different episodes. Uh, thank you so much for taking the time to commit this uh, review and put it up. I, I appreciate it again when you leave me reviews. I read them here at the end of each and every episode. Thank you so much. Again, uh, Stockbroker Bill and all and all of you. On social media... I would love to connect with you. I am on Twitter. <clears throat> that is probably the platform I do the most chatty Kathy talking. Uh, on Twitter, I am at Robert Liefeld, R-O-B-E-R-T-L-I-E-F-E-L-D. That's it. Straight Robert Liefeld. I love uh, hearing your thoughts, your ideas, your concepts, your your DMs, your messages, your mentions. Thank you so much for, for interacting with me on Twitter. I try and share news and, 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 and keep some... Uh, observations going on, on Twitter, but, uh, I get pretty excited. I love to retweet history. And I mean, you guys, if you, if you follow me, you know, the deal I have tried to have a, uh, kinder, gentler, happier, uh, Twitter account these last about eight years. And so, so I really don't go, uh, I, I, try, I try and keep it positive and, uh, the world has enough cynicism, but Hey, check me out on Twitter. Love to, love to, um, check you out at Robert Liefeld is where you'll find me on Instagram. That's where I put posters of, of uh, uh, pictures, pictures of my life, what I'm doing with my family, my friends, my, my, uh, my work, my, my, my toys, my statues. It's, 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 it's a 
weirdo account. I am at Rob Liefeld on, on Instagram. I have a little blue check that says verifies that it, it is you I am interacting with. That's how you'll know you'll find me at Rob Liefeld on Instagram. Uh, I, again, I enjoy your comments, your mentions, your, your DMs, your, your, uh, your, your, uh, discussions with me on Instagram. I, I've talked to you and reached so many of you through, through these platforms and Instagram is really important. And I, 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 I just enjoy interacting with you. So follow me, give me a follow. You'll, you'll see again, uh, the trips I take, the food I eat, um, you know, apologies in advance for all the bad pictures. Uh, but, but again, it's, it's where you're, you're most likely to get me to tease a new page or, or something about my projects as well as all the family and friends, uh, friend stuff. So on Instagram at Rob Liefeld on Facebook, we have a group, it's called Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. That's the full title. Rob Liefeld, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. It is administered and moderated by myself and a gentleman named Terry Sala, S-A-L-A. We will be the ones that click you on through. So much of the conversations that we start here, continue there. And, uh, and we talk more long form, back and forth, great ideas, people um, sharing their comics, their stuff that they think is cool. And we have art contests, so please join in. Uh, Terry runs those. So, so join in, follow me over on my Facebook group, Rob Liefeld, uh, Marvel Extreme and Beyond. Either myself or Terry will be the ones that click you through once you um, click the join button. And so that's how you know you're in the right place. Look forward to seeing you over there. There's an app, I'm not sure. <clears throat> you have heard about it. It's called Whatnot. It is burning up because uh, there's, I mean, there's way more than comic books and collectibles, but that's the category I'm in. There's sports stuff, there's gaming stuff, there's card stuff. But uh, when you go on my live streams, if you get the Whatnot app, I, 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 I encourage you to get the Whatnot app. Follow me at Rob Liefeld. You'll, not- you'll get notifications when my shows go live. I try and do twice a week. We do all manner of custom signatures, remarks, there's original art, there's signed Funko Pops, there's toys, action figures that I offer, um, little preliminary sketches. I, I just, we're, we're trying to get as much available on the live stream as we possibly can that, that, that you are interested in. And, and by your response, you are interested in it. We have a number of exclusive variants. Deadpool Batterblood has six, six exclusive variants you can only get on whatnot. They're not on my site. They're no, nowhere are they in, available other than through this live stream. So if you click on, um, it is me. I'm talking directly at you in every whatnot live stream. We have, you, you'll find out what a back, uh, 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 I'm sorry, uh, uh, a drop shadow chisel is, a chisel signature, a blood splatter chisel, a rainbow chisel. We are doing it up, trying to keep it fresh. Uh, again, Deadpool Batter Blood number one joins the Spider-Man whatnot variants I've done, the Brigade whatnot variants I've done, and the... Deadpool New Mutants whatnot variants I've done so many exclusives available only through interacting with us there hope 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 to see you there hope to interact with you excited uh, to hang with you on my whatnot live streams get the app download it follow me at Rob Liefeld <clears throat> there is a CGC uh, very very first opportunity I've ever done with CGC they've um, partnered with me I'm doing an in-house signing they are accepting through July. Uh, for for a CGC, the the number one graded company uh, in, in graded comics, CGC is having a is hosting me for my very first in house uh, personal signing, and so many of you are just uh, jamming them up with your comics. We are so excited. Get those 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 comics that you have wanted me to sign because unfortunately, I am likely in my older age. People keep asking me, Rob, what convention are you going to? I'm not going to conventions. I'm I'm I very much um 
put on the back burner going to shows. Uh, I mean, honestly, uh, a show like New York Comic Con is, is the one that's going to get my consideration. The the hardcore touring of of doing doing all different sites in Florida and Texas and Arizona and Montana and Wisconsin, Chicago. It's it's likely not going to be something I'm doing in the near future as I am really limiting my personal appearances. But when you want to get your comic signed, you can send it this this one time into CGC. Go to their website, look up CGC, uh, go to their site, look up Rob Liefeld. Uh, you'll have inf- information, Rob Liefeld signing on what to do. They have a customized Liefeld label. I am so excited to get that Liefeld label in front of you guys. I think uh, I think they're going to be, between you, me, and the lamppost, I think those are going to be underserved. All of my special categories are unfortunately sold out. The remarks, the sketches, and the uh, drop, the, the, the chisel logo, but a standard uh, Rob Liefeld signature on one of your favorite books is available through this now uh, for the first time ever live in person. They'll be broadcasting me. It'll be a blast. It'll be so much fun. I cannot wait to do this with you guys. So, so make sure you get your books in time for me to receive them. They are um, receiving through July 23rd, so you still have time. So get on that as fast as you possibly can. So I told you that at the end, before we wrap it up, I was going to share some uh, some some cool facts, and I am indeed about to do that with you. It, it concerns the franchise that we are interacting with today. We have mentioned Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom and how it ushered in the age of the PG-13 because of all the uh, families that were upset at the gore. But did you know <clears throat> that uh, obviously the, the original movie, Raiders of the Lost Ark, the movie that introduced us to Indiana Jones, uh, it is having its 42nd anniversary this year. It's actually the week of this podcast. It's 42 years since uh, Raiders of the, of the Lost Ark came out introducing us to Indiana Jones, who would go on to be in Temple of Doom, which is part of our 1984 uh, broadcast. But it was the summer of 77, basking in the success of Star Wars. Uh, Spielberg and and George Lucas both took a holiday over in Hawaii. And uh, George Lucas told Steven Spielberg, look, I've got something better than James Bond, because they had both fantasized about doing James Bond movies. And he said... uh, it's about a globe trop, a globe trotting, whip cracking archaeologist, and uh, Lucas had really conceived of the entire uh, concept, but but the exact object of of uh, Indiana Jones' mission wasn't determined yet. But there was a director named Philip Kaufman. He had uh, interviewed stuff like uh, great movies like Clint Eastwood's Outlaw, Josie Wales. George Lucas had originally danced with Philip Kaufman about directing this. And uh, obviously Spielberg went on to do it, but Kaufman was the one that told Stephen he should be chasing and pursuing the Ark of the Government, and that's why he has a story credit on the book. Paramount Pictures was very reluctant to use Steven Spielberg on Raiders of the Lost Ark, very reluctant, and uh, they, they, they ultimately had no choice. Uh, they were reluctant because he had gone over budget on 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 both Close Encounters and Jaws, but, but uh, George Lucas doubled down and said, you have to go in. Uh, with me on Spielberg, and also uh, uh, he had Stephen had just done a big, big 1941. It's called 1941, a uh, a a a movie that had not done well. I'm sure they were they were they were um, just trying to use any reason not to do this. But Lucas insisted that he would not make it with them without Spielberg Spielberg at the helm behind the camera, and they relented. Uh, <clears throat> in, in order to avoid those overruns and to address their fi- financial concerns. Uh, Steven Spielberg planned out every single set piece in advance using models, and uh, Raiders actually came in under budget, you guys. Under budget. Uh, 
there was a uh, Steve McQueen movie named Nevada Smith. And uh, Lucas, inspired by that, gave, gave the name Indiana Smith originally, and they eventually changed it to Indiana Jones. Jim Steranko, I've covered this in an entire Raiders of the Lost Ark episode. The legendary comic book artist Jim Steranko was uh, hired by Lucas and Steven Spielberg and had several interactions with them as he created the key art, um, the, the, the concept visuals that would launch uh, th- th- this franchise. And if you go and look at those Jim Steranko paintings, again, there's a dedicated uh, podcast. Just about a year ago, I did to Raiders of the Lost Ark and the, the comic book influence. Uh, on it uh, and how, how how key Jim Stranko was and you got to find out exactly you know what happened why Jim didn't do more of those incredible uh key uh key frames concept art for Raiders so uh you I, I'm sure you're all aware that that you know Tom Selleck was was the original guy that everyone focused on but because of his commitment on the hit show Magnum PI he could not get away and he had a conflict um and he, and he could not uh, uh, be, be Indiana Jones. Other names that he had considered were Michael Biehn, uh, who who'd see, you'd see in uh, Terminator, Don Johnson, David Hasselhoff, even Jack Nicholson was somebody that was being considered for Indiana Jones. So Hasselhoff, Nicholson, Michael Biehn, and uh, Don Johnson were all in the running before they settled on Tom Selleck. There's footage online, if you find it, of Tom Selleck with a... Uh, Screen test was no less than Sean Young performing as Marion. Uh, <clears throat> Spielberg, uh, you know, and Lucas really debated whether they should go to Harrison Ford, but ultimately I think we, we all know that that is exactly what happened, and that that is uh, one of the reasons that the movie succeeded so much is, is, is Harrison Ford's incredible chemistry and, and deliverance in this role. Did you know that the other roles of Marion in the original movie were, uh, were, were Amy Irving was up for it, Jane Seymour, Deborah Winger, uh, Mary Steenburge, and all auditioned, including Sean Young, who is again in this uh, footage with Tom Selleck. <clears throat> Karen Allen was ultimately cast after Steven Spielberg caught her in Am- Animal House and thought she would do the uh, physical comedy uh, and drama and perform that, and 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 and, she, and that she could pull that off. Uh, Lawrence Kasdan uh, gave her the name Marion, and uh, he would he would drive Raven, uh, uh, he would drive down Ravenwood Court regularly in Los Angeles, which is why he combined Marion with uh, Ravenwood. So, look, Raiders of the Lost Ark clearly left a giant, giant, giant. Um, <clears throat> Uh, uh, Mark and and uh, wound up with this movie that we discussed today. You know, the number two movie of 1984. Uh, in the very initial Raiders film, there was a uh, Shanghai trip and a cart chase, and they ended up taking that out of Raiders and putting the Shang the 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 Shanghai uh, the the cart the, the cart tra- chase in the uh, you know, in the mines, they put that in Temple of Doom. So part of Raiders of the Lost Ark does live on in Temple of Doom. Uh, uh, Temple of Doom. Temple of Doom would be an interesting play on the on both concepts. Temple of Doom featured stuff like the cart race that was originally edited out of Raiders of the Lost Ark. So, uh, look, some some incredible, incredible notes in regards to how Raiders of the Lost Ark became the phenomenon that it was. 
and um, spouted off so many, uh, you know, incredible, incredible adventures that followed, including our our number two movie and in, and 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 also the the Last Crusade, which came out years later, which is just fantastic. So anyway, I uh, thought you'd enjoy in, enjoy those final. Um, kind of show notes rounding out some of the behind the scenes of how Raider, Raiders of the Lost Ark um, came to be. Temp, Temple of Doom, Temple of Doom, um, as successful as it was, <clears throat> could not replicate Raiders' incredible popularity. It was in in the American box office for 41 straight weeks. It did not leave theaters until 1982. And it was, of course, the highest grossing movie of 1981, which Temple of Doom, Doom had to... Uh, to fight with with the giant shocking success of Ghostbusters, who would not be dislodged, and again had a forty million uh, plus uh, gross on them on on top of the charts. But anyway, Raiders gave us this incredible uh, world and the sequel, Temple of Doom, that we celebrated today in our 1984 edition. Come back next time. We're going to do more of 1984. And this is where I tell you that at the end of each and every show, I wish you all the very best. I hope your mental health, your spiritual health, your physical health, and your emotional health are where they need to be. I hope you are strong. And I hope you are dealing with the grind. And I just encourage you, get away. Have a great laugh with your friends. Go exercise. Exercise is part of my daily routine because it helps me manage the stress from deadlines and raising a family and kids and all the stuff that life throws at us. Um, but I also, come on, you know I am a huge proponent um, of candy bars and, 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 and delicious desserts and junk food because I think that makes that, 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 that proves a great distraction in and of itself. I pair those with comic books, movies, streaming shows to great success in my own personal life. To the gentleman who very, very generously brought me Reese's candy bars and peanut butter cups at the recent store signing that I just had celebrating Deadpool Batter Blood. I say thank you. I say thank you, sir. I enjoyed them so much. I had never had the candy bar. I now hold it in the highest esteem. Yes, even above the big cup. Oh my gosh, the combo of chocolate and peanut butter just wowed me. And even Dave, who works with me on all my signings and all whatnot, said, Rob, I have never seen you open a gift that someone gave you. And I said, hey man, these are sealed. You know, your 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 plate of cookies you're going to give to me, I will never eat those. I, I believe you will be trying to poison me. But sealed uh, candy bars, um, I'm there each and every time. This Reese's candy bar knocked it out of the park. Thank you to the gentleman that provided those to me. I wish you all the best, all of you. Get that distraction. Be filled by creativity in, in order to, um, to, to restore you and get you back up and where you need to be. Thank you so much for listening to our show. Come back and see me. I'm going to be here. We got part two coming up. We are most certainly, absolutely, and inevitably going to talk again real soon. 